heard this story before, and probably because I've told it before, but uh, you guys remember Zig Ziglar? Who, who remembers Zig Ziglar? Okay, all right, good. Remember the, the, the guy's the corporate salesman turned motivational speaker? And he used to tell this story of the time he won prize country ham at the annual sales contest, and how uh, when he got it home, he handed it to uh, his wife, Jean, who was planning to cook it that evening, took the ham and immediately cut the two ends off of it and placed it in a roasted pan. Uh, and, and seeing her do that, the Zig asked his wife, he said, honey, why, why in the world did you cut the two ends off my prized ham? She said, well, that's how you bake a ham, and, and I know I'm right because that's how my mama always cooked her ham, and you always said her ham is delicious. Zig said, yeah, you're, you're right, they're delicious, but well, why did your mom cut the two ends off the ham? Jean's, well, I'm not sure, but let, let's call her and we'll ask. And so uh, they rang Jean's mother's house, and when she answered, Jean said, Mama, I want to ask you something. Why, why do you always cut the two ends off the ham before you cook it? And Jean's mom said, well, that's, that's how you bake hams, and I do it exactly like I've seen your granny do it ever since I was a little girl. But she's, she's sitting right here with me, so let's just ask her. So she turned to her mother and she said, Granny, uh, Jean and I want to know why you have to cut the two ends off the ham before you bake it. To which Granny replied, well, I don't know why you two do it, but uh, I had to because the only roasting pan I owned was too small to put a full ham in one piece. <laughs> Thanks for laughing at that. That was good. Uh, and you know, we can laugh at that. But you know, the truth is that that kind of situation is all too familiar, and it happens, uh, it can happen to any of us because, you know, it's really easy to get caught up in familiar patterns and entrenched traditions almost to the point where we, we don't even consider why we're doing them in the first place. Uh, and I'm telling you that because today as we continue our look at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to broach that same type of topic, the topic of what we do and why we do it when it comes to God's law, and of what difference, if any, it makes in the lives of Christian believers in the light of his coming. So we're returning again to Matthew chapter 5. I know the bulletin says Matthew chapter 28, but that's not correct. Uh, and I'm going to continue on as I've been doing. Uh, and I'm going to read you the text of the Sermon on the Mount up to and through the section we're covering today. And then if you, if you missed any of the previous sermons, you can go back during the week and uh, go to either the church website or to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and uh, catch up on the previous uh, episodes. But this morning we're going to be reading Matthew 5. Verses 1 through 20. So please listen for the voice of the Spirit as we read. Seeing the crowds, he meaning Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you. And utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? 
It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. And do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord to us today. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father God, in your word, uh, we know are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So uh, open our eyes, Lord, that we can see the wonders of it in these next fleeting moments. Empty our minds of preconceptions and distractions and fill our hearts with the gift of faith until we see Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen. So, you know, in recent years, it's become kind of fashionable for uh, the critics of our faith to try and dismiss Christians as hypocrites with the accusation that we tend to pick and choose which of the Bible's laws that we want to follow uh, and which ones we just set aside. But like, for instance, you know, doing things such as, as eating bacon, right? That's the, that's the title of the sermon, right? Praise the Lord and pass the bacon. Right? But eating bacon when pork is declared forbidden in the Old Testament or a law from Leviticus chapter 11. Uh, or wearing clothing made from two different fabrics that's condemned in Leviticus 19 or uh, here's a good one. Failing to stand up when a person older than you comes into the room. You know, that was one of God's laws. It's commanded for the people of God to do in that same section. And so our critics will say, well, you know, we don't see you keep any of those laws, but you, you still want to harp on the sins of premarital sex and reading horoscopes and practicing homosexuality and gluttony and, and drunkenness. And so uh, until you can explain to us how come you keep some laws and not others, how about you just keep the whole thing yourself and leave us alone? And I'll have to admit that on the surface, that that sounds like a pretty convincing argument. And maybe even more so in light of Jesus' words today from our text. And it seems to beg the question of us Christians, which ones of God's laws do we actually have to follow? And which ones, if any, are we free to skip? Which ones are important and which ones do we just do because that's what folks have always done or maybe think that we're supposed to do? Anybody ever ask you a question like that? I know I have asked that. Uh, and here's what I think is so ingenious and so insidious about an inquiry like that. And it's that there's just enough common sense in it and just enough of a kernel of truth that it allows our detractors to feel intellectually superior while at the same time completely missing the point of the gospel and the moral character of our Christian faith. Because what that does is it completely sidesteps the person and the work of Jesus and exactly what he came into the world to do. Uh, and the truth is that it, it all really shouldn't be as confusing as we try to make it because Jesus explained it very plainly in our text today uh, when he said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so he's telling us that somehow the, the whole thing, this whole Old Testament laws and, 
and all the commandments and, and all the things that God requires somehow come to a, a high point, come to a culmination point in his life and ministry. And so because of that statement, I think, you know, rather than specifically answering which of God's laws we have to keep and which ones we don't, what I want to do instead is, is answer the more important question of what exactly is God's law and in what way does Jesus fulfill it? So that's what we're going to do. So first, what is the law? Well, the Mosaic Law or the, the Torah it actually takes up a large portion of the Old Testament. So it's, you know, it's much more than just the text and the Ten Commandments. Uh, but actually extends to 613 commands uh, that are required for a life of absolute perfection before the holiness of God. Uh, and those laws come in three varieties. Right? There's two of which, which were specific to the people of Israel. Uh, and one type is for the whole world. So that one that's for the whole world is what's called God's moral law. And that's the law that's incumbent on all human beings everywhere for all time. And then there's the other two, which are the ceremonial laws and precepts on ritual purity and about tabernacle and then temple worship. Uh, and then the third type of judicial laws or precepts uh, that are a set of governmental rules and social structure for the people of God when they moved into the promised land. But no matter what you call them, or how you want to categorize them, they all have a purpose. And one of their primary purposes is to reveal God's holiness and our sinfulness. Because let's be really honest, right? You and I as, as Gentiles can't even keep 10 of the commandments perfectly, let alone 613 that apply to the Jews, right? And, and just in case you might be feeling particularly holy this morning, I'm going to prove that fact to you. So just by a show of hands, has anyone here ever told a lie? Okay. If you didn't, if you didn't raise your hand on that one, you just lied again. Um, has anybody ever taken anything that didn't belong to them, specifically belong to them, no matter how small the dollar value was? Okay. Has anyone here ever taken the Lord's name in vain, even if it was just to say, "Oh my God"? Okay. Well, then as a group, what we're saying is we're all a bunch of lying, thieving, blasphemous sinners. Congratulations, you didn't even make three out of ten. And it's not because there's anything wrong with God's law. <clears throat> Psalm 19.7 says the law of the Lord is perfect. And it is so because it's given by a perfect God. Don't forget the original stone tablets that Moses received were inscribed by the very finger of God. So the law clearly reveals God's standard for his people living in a fallen world. And the behavior it demands, and we talked about this in Sunday school basically, is perfect righteousness lived out in willing action. Perfect righteousness lived out in willing action. That's a pretty big bar, right? Amen. So the law is holy. And the commandments are holy. And they're righteous and they're good. And God's desire is for that holiness to be reflected in his people. The trouble is that you and I can't live up to that. Because although there's nothing wrong with God's law, there is something very wrong with me. And if you're a human being, there's something wrong with you too. And you know it, even if you're not willing to admit. It's why Romans 3.23 reminds us, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So how many is that? All. all, right? So we're all born with the attitude that we just want what we want when we want it. <laughs> and it doesn't take long for that to seep into our culture and it's reflected in a society that says we know what's right, but we don't care. So don't talk to us about God or about Christ or about all that sin stuff. Just, just keep it to yourself. 
go worship Jesus on your own time. Because, brothers and sisters, we live in a day and age when people look at their creator and flat out say to him, no. They say, no, God, we, we know your plans, but we have plans of our own. Thank you very much. Proving that the problem is not ignorance of God's truth, but the suppression of it. And so people reject God's revelation of himself and they replace it, or as Paul says, they exchange it for something else. And folks, the danger here is that when you stop believing in God, it's not that you end up believing in nothing, but rather that you could end up believing in almost anything. All you got to do is look around and you can see that's true. As a result, Paul says, God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their heart desired. Meaning that to a great extent, folks, the, the judgment of God on humanity is, in some cases, getting exactly what we want. Whatever that particular want happens to be. Because, brothers and sisters, every sin, the, the public ones and the private ones, the socially acceptable ones and the ones that we don't like to discuss around company, Every sin is treason and cosmic rebellion against the majesty of Christ. And Jesus' life and his perfect obedience to the law testifies to that reality. Now, that's the bad news. But here's the good news. Jesus knows exactly what you're like and what you've done. And he died on the cross to save you anyway. Amen, somebody. And that, folks, is where we see the unique revelation of the fullness of God's nature. Laid out bare for us with no facade, with no pretense that God is just and so he must condemn our sins. But God is love, so he becomes a man. He becomes a man in the person of Jesus who lives a perfect sinless life and goes to the cross where all of the justice and wrath that I personally deserve was thrown down on him instead so that he could credit me with his perfect righteousness. That's what the reformer Martin Luther called the great exchange. Where I'm not Calvary, the worst about me was unfairly laid upon Christ and the best about him is his holiness and his perfect obedience is now graciously applied to me and to you if you're in Christ. If you're in his perfect sacrifice. That not in the blood of bulls or goats, but in God's perfect sinless son who in the moment of his death said the most incredible last three words. He said, it is finished. And Leonard Raven in his writings on this in the last sayings of Christ on the cross, he says, none is more important or more poignant than it is finished. And a big part of what he meant there, I think, was that the Old Testament laws that Jesus said this morning that he hadn't come to abolish but to fulfill were finally complete in him. And another commentator said here, Christ's words and actions on the cross completed the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies and symbols and foreshadowings of the coming Messiah. From Genesis to Malachi, over 300 specific prophecies detailing the coming of the anointed one, and every one of those fulfilled by Jesus. So all of them, he says, from the seed who would crush the head of the serpent in Genesis 3, to the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, to the prediction of the messenger of the Lord, John the Baptist, who would prepare the way for the Messiah. All prophecies of Jesus' life, ministry, and death fulfilled and finished at the cross. And that's not all he continues. He says, when Jesus uttered those words and is finished, he was declaring the sin debt that I owe to the Father was wiped away completely and forever. Not that Jesus wiped away any debt that he owed to the Father, because he didn't. But rather, Jesus eliminated the debt owed by me and by the rest of mankind. The debt of sin. 
And now in him, that is truly finished. And I, and I know we touched on this in Sunday school. I think one, maybe one other time in the sermon. Before that little three-word phrase, uh, in English, it is finished as a translation of one single Greek word, to telestai. In the first century, a Greek servant might have used the word to telestai when he completed a task his master had assigned to him. And the servant would say, Master, it, it's finished. A judge might have used the word to telestai when issuing a ruling that the sentence had been completed. A merchant of that day might have said to telestai after stamping a bill is paid in full. A Greek soldier might have, have cried to telestai in battle over a defeated foe to let them know that you are finished. And so when Jesus cried, it's finished on the cross, uh, it wasn't a cry of despair. It wasn't a cry of defeat to mean that he was finished. No, when Jesus uttered those words, he was declaring, I have completed the picture of salvation. I've done the work my master sent me to do. I met the requirements of the law. Completed the perfect sacrifice. I paid the debt of sin in full, and I have conquered the enemy of sin and death, and it is finished. And brothers and sisters, that declaration resounds in a living voice, through a living word from a living Savior, through which God accomplishes and fulfills his gospel with a message that makes the difference between heaven and hell for those that have ears to hear. To hear that the justice of God has been fully satisfied in Jesus Christ, the Lamb. To hear that all the sacrifices and ceremonial laws of the Old Testament have permanently ceased in him. And to realize that now that they have, that because of Christ's perfect obedience to them, that his Holy Spirit now gives me a changed heart gives me the will and shows me the way to keep God's moral laws that I cannot keep on my own. And what are those laws? Well, Jesus told him himself in Matthew 22 uh, when a lawyer came up and asked him, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. And brothers and sisters, all of those laws and prophets hang on Jesus. But the good news is he hung on the cross to cover your inability to keep. Does that mean we get to live any way we want? No. The Apostle Paul dealt with that question in Romans 9 when he said, What should we say then? Should we go on sinning so that grace may increase? And by no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? And of course the answer is we can't. But instead, by the fact that we are so graciously freed from the legal demands of the Old Testament law, it should result in our living a life that willingly glorifies God in Christ. And even though Jesus released you and me from the burdensome ceremonies and restrictions of the Torah, brothers and sisters, that's not a license to sin, but should instead result in our living lives of grateful obedience. And so I encourage you, get in God's word today to help you with that. Don't be as lazy in your thinking and in your knowledge of the Bible as those critics that try to tear us down. Don't be satisfied with not knowing God's will for you. But ask him in prayer to show you the things he would have you to do. Take the time to learn the difference between the ancient ritualistic observances outlined in Scripture and the living covenant promises we're called to operate in. Because brothers and sisters, the gospel is not a message about what we need to do, but about what has already been graciously done for us. It's not a message about our ability to solve our own individual problems, but about God's ability 
and even more so his kindness to solve them for us. So that we can be free from carrying the weight of the world and from the burden of our own spiritual walk on our own shoulders. So rest in it. Right now this morning, any burden, any sin, any trial that you're carrying, cast it on the Lord in prayer. And then come to his table in mercy. He's opened the way. He's paid the price. Will you join him this morning? Let's pray together. God, our Father, it's truly right and our greatest joy always and everywhere to give you thanks and praise, especially in this Holy Supper, recalling that perfect sacrifice once offered on the cross by our Lord Jesus Christ, and asking you, Lord, by the joy of his resurrection and in expectation of his coming again, that you unite us in your faith and love so that we confess your name and sit together at one table. So come now, Lord, and continue your transforming work in this place and in this time that eyes may be opened that hearts may be radically changed by the good news of the gospel. And so remembering now your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we take from your creation this bread and this wine, and we ask you to pour out your spirit upon us and upon these your gifts, that this meal may be for us a communion with our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray.